Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program, we are going to take a closer look at some of the steps introduced today in Victoria, addressing strata insurance costs, in some cases skyrocketing costs for those living in strata units. Richard Zussman is going to join us a bit later this half hour to talk a bit more about that. Also, the issue of police liaison officers in schools. Victoria, the latest city to vote to review the role of police liaisons. We're going to check in with one of the trustees that participated in that vote. And are you one of the couples struggling because of the breakdown of chores, you could say, as more and more people are staying home during COVID-19? A new survey shows there might be, well, people might be not picking up their socks and such. And we're going to break down those numbers. But first, as you've been hearing in the news, some new numbers have been released by the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation, taking a look at the outlook for housing in particular, factoring in COVID-19. Let's bring in Eric Bond, a senior specialist, market analysis, housing markets and indicators with CMHC. Eric, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. Uh, taking a look at the numbers, maybe walk us through. Uh, this is showing uh, a slowdown in housing starts, a predicted slowdown in housing prices. What sticks out to you as some of the, the bigger points in these uh, findings today? Certainly. So, uh, you know, our outlook is grounded on the uh, challenges that are facing the economy in the region and across the country, where we've seen uh, declines in uh, employment, and that's impacted people's income, as well as an interruption in uh, migration, which is a key driver of population growth uh, in the region. Uh, In terms of our forecast, we are uh, predicting a decline in housing starts uh, this year between 37 and 58 percent in Metro Vancouver. Uh, But that comes off a a high, a record high in terms of housing starts uh, last year. And this is simply as uh, builders and developers uh, adjust to the the new environment and the expectations uh, for the future as well. Uh, so going into this, just before the pandemic hit, uh, like you said, we were at a high when it came to housing starts. It looks as though, I mean, not a huge surprise there, that came to a bit of a halt. Residential construction uh, in BC has been able to continue throughout the pandemic, uh, which has been very uh, helpful uh, for our region, uh, you know, seeing as we do have a, a housing shortage. Uh, and that's in contrast to uh, some other uh, provinces where we did have an interruption in uh, construction. Uh, what has been affected is launches of new projects and, uh, you know, in terms of arranging financing or just, uh, you know, willing to, to go ahead on a new project. Uh, you know, some developers are, are waiting to, to see what's, uh, you know, how this is going to play out in the economy. But certainly as population growth resumes, and uh, particularly in the rental market, we're going to see, uh, you know, increased demand uh, for housing going forward and we'll need more uh, housing units uh, for the region. Uh, when we look at the rental market moving forward, there's some talk today of a, a bit of a silver lining in that uh, the, there might be more rentals or there might be more of a price decline when it comes to rentals. Is that something that the report found? So we will have a uh, complete uh, picture of the rental market with our fall rental market survey. Uh, there's no new data points uh, available at this time, but suffice to say, we you know have been looking at uh, more qualitative indicators of, of what's been going on. 
uh, you know, on the demand side, we do have, uh, you know, international students, a, a group who uh, who tend to rent uh, quite a bit. Uh, you know, they've um, unfortunately, uh, you know, had to, to leave the country for now or have not been as active in the rental market. Uh, you know, that demand will return uh, in future. Uh, but then, you know, we also have, uh, you know, increased uh, opportunities, um, you know, for, for renters because there is a supply that's going to become available as well. We have about 9,000 uh, rental apartments currently under construction uh, in Metro Vancouver. Those units will complete over the next couple of years, providing more choice. And at the same time, on the secondary rental market, we have individual condos that might have previously been rented on short-term rental platforms like Airbnb. Uh, Those units are likely, or some of them anyway, are likely to come back to the long-term rental market due to the interruption in uh, tourism. And so that will provide more choices. So all of those taken together, we're likely to see, uh, you know, in the short term anyway, an increase in vacancy rates and potentially lower asking rents uh, for units compared with last year. Uh, but in the medium term, certainly uh, rental demand remains very strong in Metro Vancouver, and we will continue to need more units uh, for rent. And when we take a look as well at the unemployment, uh, even though some of it is temporary because of the COVID-19 pandemic, is it also who is being most impacted if it's people that weren't in the housing market anyway, as far as buyers? And is that having less of an impact on people who who maybe still have their jobs, still have that income and are at that income level where they were considering purchasing anyway? Yeah, that, that's a, a tricky point because, you know, so much of the Vancouver market is actually driven by wealth and not income. And so you have, uh, for example, the current environment where, you know, we've seen homes in the $1 to $1.5 million range, which, you know, is not uh, affordable based on local incomes. But, you know, if you have equity in another property or you bring significant wealth to the table, uh, you know, that activity can continue. So the average price so far over the last couple of months has been uh, supported uh, by people people, uh, uh, you know, who are able to transact, uh, you know, and haven't, say, been impacted uh, by the employment situation. Uh, where the job losses, uh, as you mentioned, you know, where, where those are going to play out most strongly uh, is in the rental market, at least in the near term. Um, and, uh, you know, that uh, depending on how the recovery progresses, uh, you know, those are also your, your home buyers of tomorrow as well. So it depends how, uh, you know, their situations uh, evolve and how, uh, you know, much incomes in the region are able to recover. And taking a look at the rebound or, or the rebuilding coming back, it looks like Vancouver is behind some other parts of the country as far as the forecast for, for prices starting to rebound, and that could be la- late in 2022. Is that a fair assessment or what we're looking at as far as the prediction right now? So our forecast is for a price decline of between 8 and 16% in total over the next two years. And as you mentioned, uh, we are expecting, uh, you know, to turn the corner on that and and see some growth again towards the end of uh, 2022. Um, You know, that price forecast, you know, as I I mentioned, is grounded in the economic uh, the economic environment uh, for the region, uh, but you know there's also a, a compositional uh, factor there as well, and that is that as more and more uh, you know multifamily properties, so condos, uh, you know make up a greater share of sales uh, in the region over time, uh, they do have lower prices, and that will uh, limit the uh, progression of your average price just based on composition alone. All right. Interesting numbers uh, indeed. Eric, thank you so much for helping us break them down today. Appreciate your time. 
Thank you. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, school trustees in both Vancouver and Victoria have now voted to review the role of police liaison officers in their schools. In Victoria, the motion directed the school board's equity committee to discuss the role of the officers with the school community. And this comes after last week, the Vancouver Elementary Teachers Association voted in favour to consider banning police from classrooms. And this all comes in the wake of anti-black racism protests around the world following the death of George Floyd in the United States. Well, let's bring in Rob Painter, a Victoria School trustee. He brought forward the motion. Rob, thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning or this afternoon. My pleasure. Sorry. Good afternoon. My brain is still uh, stuck on the morning show. It is afternoon. Uh, tell me a little bit about this and the motion that you brought forward. What do you hope to accomplish or what does this lead to? Uh, well, my intentions in, in bringing it forward was to try to be responsive to the, the events that are unfolding here and in the United States in particular, and uh, to, well, to uh, raise a flag and, and indicate that this is something that we really need to examine. Uh, I think it's always useful for us to uh, uh, stop check our assumptions, especially in a case like me. I'm a white, middle-class, straight male. I'm in a very privileged position in this society, and I need to be constantly reminded that my own experiences don't necessarily, don't necessarily reflect the experiences of other people in our community. And so the intention was to actually seek out those those other opinions and other experiences, learn from them, and then make whatever changes were necessary to this program to ensure that it uh, delivered the results that we were hoping for. And do you see this as being a chance then to have the conversation exactly that, in that a school liaison, a police liaison in a school to one person might be, uh, might the, the response might be completely different and likely is completely different compared to another person that everybody would, would feel differently or would react differently. Is it is it time then that we have that conversation? And it's not it's not to suggest we should get rid of the program altogether, but maybe the program needs to be different. Uh, that's that's certainly my my view, uh, and it's. I think one of the the things we really need to do is is, you know, look at our our initial assumptions of of uh, like just what are our expectations of having the program in the first place. What is it supposed to achieve, and then actually uh, determine whether or not it is it is meeting those objectives and and deal with this in. Uh, a more deliberate manner. Uh, I do recognize that, uh, and and we've heard already that there are uh, a broad range of viewpoints. It's not a it's not a universal uh, experience for everyone, and it's really important that as we go forward, that we are open to all those perspectives and try to find uh, what is the best fit for our community. And at this point, the way it is now with the police liaison officers in schools, what is the the actual mandate of liaison officers? What are they there to do? 
Well, we're we're getting a little bit out of uh, out of my depth, uh, but that was actually one of the things that uh, I raised in a, a in our earlier conversations at committee when we were initially exploring this uh, uh, motion because uh, our district doesn't have uh, any kind of policy or regulations about uh, the program, and uh, you know it's it, my sense is that it is a little bit more ad hoc than we would probably like. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I think it's necessary to get some some guidelines in place around this. So with this vote by trustees then to review the role of the police li- liaison officer in schools, what happens next? Well, that'll be uh, the direction of the board. Uh, at this point, the, the motion has passed. It's going to be, rather than uh, the equity ad hoc committee there is actually going to be a specific committee struck with terms of reference specific to this uh uh issue and uh it will be uh directed to initiate those conversations but at this point in time the terms of reference haven't been approved or actually developed so i can't specifically speak to timeline or what its mandate will precisely be. Uh, have trustees at this point have any co- had any conversations with Victoria Police? Uh, we haven't had any formal discussions as a board, no. Are, are there plans to have discussions with them? I would think that that would be a desirable thing. And actually, one of the things that's interesting with uh, our school district is that uh, we actually span uh, a number of uh, municipality municipal borders. So uh, we have RCMP, Victoria Police, and Saanich Police in our different schools. So it's uh, it's going to be a bit of a, a complex dance. Well, when the pandemic first started, it wasn't that long ago, but we anecdotally talked about the fact that should we be lining up divorce lawyers to talk to on the various talk shows because we were thinking that maybe with more couples stuck in their homes together for much longer periods of time, that could lead to an increase in divorces. Well, we weren't too, too far off. Maybe not a huge spike in divorces, although I have seen anecdotal stories about an increase, but certainly couples learning more about each other and their habits and what it's like to spend that much time with another human being. Well, Mario Canseco with Research Co. has done a poll about this very topic, and he joins me on the line now. Mario, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Great to be here. You asked people who were in lockdown together or who were perhaps working from home together, they hadn't before, spending a lot more time together, where they're struggling the most and some interesting findings. Well, there are some cases uh, where the numbers don't really shift that much when you're looking at men and women. Uh, Issues such as making decisions about what to do, providing emotional support when you need it. Uh, We do see a high level of satisfaction from almost everyone when it comes to these matters. Uh, But there are other things where men are not faring that well. Uh, This includes taking care of children, if you have any children in the home, keeping the home clean and tidy, and cooking meals. So what is quite shocking to me looking into these numbers is that some of the gender roles that we were supposed to leave behind with the 20th century are starting to creep back because of COVID-19. And did you get the impression then, or were people answering the question? Because I would think 
those would be things that you would already have a schedule or you would have divvied up those types of chores in the house. And maybe there's a bit more of it because you're both at home or, or these are new experiences or new issues that are popping up for people. Well, it is definitely new. I think what we get to, to see from the findings of the survey is that uh, it's definitely related to the way the situation is going now. Uh, you are facing a lot of different pressures. You're working from home, maybe. You haven't been able to go outside. Uh, you might be taking care of kids or pets, and, and it's very difficult for you to continue to do all of the things that you were uh, actually doing before uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but there are certain aspects uh, that are quite different. You know, I would have assumed that you know, cooking meals, you wouldn't have a lot of differences there with somebody doing something uh, one night and, and somebody else doing it the, ne- the next night. And, you know, women are more likely to be satisfied, sorry, more likely to be dissatisfied with the way their men have been handling the meals, uh, whereas men seem to be very happy about it. <laughs> um, Childcare to me was an interesting one because that is some, uh, some one scenario where there was a huge shift and that kids were suddenly out of school. And you might have had childcare, you might not have, but there's certainly, I was even talking to a lot of couples that were saying they were running out of things to do because you couldn't, everything was closed and you still had to deal with kids. You might be working at home at the same time. And it did put a lot of pressure on people it's definitely showing you know we we asked about this uh, in the first month of the COVID-19 pandemic and we found a lot of differences particularly when it came to giving kids electronics you know parents who said there's no way I'm going to hand my iPad to my seven-year-old suddenly saying please take it I need to finish something for work Uh, but what we see now is definitely a difference when it comes to the quality of childcare. Uh, from men and women. Uh, There's 46% of women who say they are very satisfied with the way uh, their spouses or significant others have been handling children, uh, but it climbs to 63% with men. So to have a 17-point difference on taking care of children, not the kind of news you want to read the week after Father's Day. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I guess not. Um, and you touched on this one as well, uh, house cleaning, keeping the home clean and tidy. And again, when you have more people in the house for greater periods of time, it's probably more difficult to, to keep the home clean and tidy. But there was a bit of a, 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 a gap as well on, on people who thought their spouse or a significant other was doing a good job. It's a big one, too. 46% of women very satisfied with how their spouse has been keeping the home clean and tidy. of men are happy. So, you know, this is the classic discussion where, you know, nobody's going to come here. We're not hosting anybody this weekend. There is no way we are going to be bringing family or friends. So maybe we don't need to keep the home clean and tidy because it's just the two of us or the three of us or the four of us. So uh, men more likely to say it's fine and they're doing a great job. Women more likely to say get off the couch and we need to vacuum. (laughs) Did you find any big differences province to province? There's a little bit of a gap. I think one of the issues that we see here is a little bit of a shift uh, when it comes to the level of satisfaction with the way things are going with your own spouse. Uh, The numbers are lower in Ontario, Quebec, and BC. We're at 64% very satisfied, which is lower than what we find in Alberta or in Atlantic Canada or in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So it's quite interesting that the areas that have the most population are the ones that are going, I definitely miss what is happening around me, and I'm having a much tougher time staying at home.
And, and interesting too, because the, the, they talk about sweating over the small stuff. And for some people, I'm sure keeping the house clean and tidy isn't small stuff. That's pretty major or taking care of pets. So who does that? Who feeds the dog? But you also took a look at emotional support, like you said, and, and how people looking at your spouse, whether or not you became more distant or you became closer together during this. Yes, the numbers are not that terrible when you look at that question. There's 46% of Canadians who say that the experience of the COVID-19 pandemic has made them grow closer as a couple, which is definitely what you want to see. 47% who say there's no difference, everything is exactly the same as it was. Only 6% who say that they have become more distant because of the pandemic. So it's uh, more than 1 in 20 couples out there. It's definitely not a good number, not as high as what we see for other things. Um, but what's quite striking is when you look at how long couples have been together, the numbers are better. Younger people, people who have been in a specific relationship, living with somebody for less than five years, more likely to say, I'm not particularly keen on everything that is going on. Those who have been together more than 10 years, more likely to say, I expected this. I chose this. I'm happy. <laughs> uh, interesting. I mean, and that's not a huge surprise, I, I imagine, if, you're li- if you've been living with someone for 20 years. Also, I would think if you've been living with someone for 20 years, there's probably a smaller chance that you're sharing a 400-square-foot apartment. You probably have space to go and isolate yourself in another room, maybe even another floor of the house. Whereas if you're in one small, one-bedroom apartment or studio, that's got to put a lot of stress on the relationship. Oh, that is definitely part of it. I think it's a... Uh it's a combination of factors. One of them is obviously the real estate space that you have available to you, uh, but also trying to learn new things. You know, this is the first time that a lot of people who are new to this relationship stuff are going to be facing a crisis like this one. You know, you always have those opportunities, your hockey night with the guys, girls night out, go out there, spend four hours out there and then come back. And now you're stuck with each other. So you better learn fast how to deal with this because it's not going to go on. It's not going to be leaving us anytime soon. Yeah, I feel like there are therapists out there who could just have a heyday with this and that are we as humans, is it a bad thing that we get sick and tired of being with someone? Even if we truly love them, that doesn't mean that we want to spend 24 hours a day with them. Well, it's been part of the challenge. And I think it's something that we've seen over the course of the past three months, asking questions to Canadians, to BC residents, uh, just trying to figure out how to go back to the way things were. And one of the questions that I'm tracking, and it always fascinates me, is when people expect things to end. And when we started asking this back in March, we had people who said, we'll be fine by Easter. You start asking this by Easter, they say, we'll be fine by Canada Day. (laughs) Now they're saying we might be fine by Halloween. So we just keep moving these goalposts, but we still need to be together. So have you found, because I know you've done a lot of polling during the, the pandemic, and a lot of your polling has been about personal stuff like this, this poll looking at relationships, but you've also done financial people responding to government bailouts, to financial packages. Packages. Where do you, do you find which is surprising you more on on where people are on the personal side of thing or more the finances and the economy? I think it's a it's definitely connected. You know, looking into the financial aspects, there's definitely a high level of concern. What is quite crucial here is we started tracking this before we knew what kind of help the federal government or the BC government were going to give people, and now we see a situation where most people are saying, "Okay, I'm fine. I can get by." Uh, I think things are going to pick up. So you see a little bit of that optimism because of some of the federal programs. Uh, But when it comes to the other stuff, the emotional side of things, the the number of residents who say, I can't exercise and I'm upset, 
or I'm eating too much or I'm drinking too much. And it's not a situation where you can just go out there for five hours and just talk to somebody. So there's definitely a sense of loneliness, which is quite ironic because we are all in this together. But it's definitely difficult for a lot of residents to not do the things that they were doing before. I sense another poll coming out as we go into phase three. Oh, definitely. (laughs) We're going to keep tracking this. You know, it's an important uh, story, and, and we think it's also great to be able to look into this from a holistic standpoint. It's not only about businesses or, or, or something that is happening to you or the kind of uh, job that our uh, elected leaders are doing. It's also something that is hitting us closer, particularly uh, those who are you know, taking care of kids, taking care of pets, and, and having little help uh, from outside the house. All right, Mario, we will leave it there. We will talk to you again soon, I'm sure. I'll be ready. Thanks so much, Jill. Because families will get closure when the politicians in this country and the public leaders in this country are able to condemn this uh, heinous crime in, in absolutely categorical terms. That was Ujjal Dosanjh. She was speaking two years ago on June 23rd. Today is 35 years since the Air India bombing. And my next guest has written an op-ed piece about this and joins me on the line now. Mira Nair is also a doctorate in communications. She currently spends her time both in Vancouver and Edmonton. Mira, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, you also have a very personal connection to this tragedy, to this terrorist attack. Yes, in the sense that um, my parents uh, came to Canada in 1965, and my brother and I were raised in the Vancouver area. And at that time, the Indian community was pretty small. I think everybody knew somebody who had been affected by the bombing. But I could never quite forget the fact that, um, you know, it was just sheer luck that we weren't among them. You know, that we were... We were the target group, families that had settled in Canada that would travel back and forth to India. I mean, those were the people that the, the Air India bombers were wanting to, to murder. So, so when you look at, at how things are today and how people remember this or what is done to mark where we are 35 years since that flight was blown up, what are your thoughts on that? I am, I am grateful to the Canadians who do remember and certainly there have been fine journalists that have, you know, stayed with this story for 35 years. I mean, Kim Bolin, Terry Molesky, Terry Glavin, Salim Jiwa. Many people have worked to keep the story alive, and I am grateful. But sadly, too many Canadians know nothing about it. And I feel there's, there's been an abdication of interest at both a political level and in the educational system. And why do you think that is, given that this this was a, a tragedy? I mean, this was a, a flight where all 329 people on board were killed. Uh, like you said, it, it was families from Vancouver. It was families that had come to Canada. Why do you think it is that there's this, this lack of remembrance? Oh, my, that's a, a fairly complicated question. Um, I think certainly at the time, um, there there was a, a feeling across the country that you know we weren't we weren't one of them uh, you know the um the victims were brown skinned skinned people we wore different clothes and we spoke with accents you know it happened on a plane outside of canada it was very easy for people to put this aside um as to why it has stayed aside i think there are there are challenges to keeping the subject going. There's a very 
vocal minority of people in the country that would prefer we not talk about it. Um, certainly, I mean, if you look every time Terry Molesky or Kim Boland writes or says something, you know, they receive quite a bit of, uh, of condemnation from some groups. I think that is plays, plays into a part of this. Uh, there also seems to be the questioning, and you're right, and I was even looking at, at, uh, at Terry Malevsky uh, tweeting about this earlier today, and, and it does, it always kind of sparks, people will question it, or people will say something like, well, what are you talking about? There was a big trial, uh, there was a conviction, which I don't think satisfies anybody that, that was personally affected or has followed this case or looked at the details. No, I mean, sadly, from before the bombing till well after, this very sad period of Canadian history has just been dogged with challenge, mistake, blunder. I mean, you name it, it happened. Um, so th- there, there has not been justice, I mean, on, on multiple levels. And uh, at this point, I think what we hope, what any of us, I think, can hope for is simply that it be remembered, that the Canadian victims be it's not left to sort of vanish into obscurity. And how? And again, I know you wrote a piece about this, but to talk again, how would you like people to be remembered? I would like to see leadership at sort of the highest level of government, our elected officials. And, and, and to be clear, I mean, this is not directed at solely, you know, our present members of parliament. This is a challenge that has been going on for 35 years. Um, it was two years ago where I... You know, suddenly where I became aware that June 23 has another meaning in the parliamentary calendar. It is the start of the summer recess. And I find it disturbing that members of parliament don't collectively acknowledge before they exit the building the duality of that date. Particularly when you imagine what they consider for their summer recess, I'm quite confident that they're looking forward to being with their children, with their families, perhaps traveling together, visiting with family and friends. Those were the goals of the people that boarded Flight 182 35 years ago, and they were blown out of the sky a few hours later. So I I do feel that at a government level, that is something that should be done, should have been done a long time ago, but it is not too late to start, and every year I just keep hoping that um, perhaps they'll do it. Uh, When you first wrote to MPs asking for that, what kind of a response did you get? A modest one. Um, I should also say that friends and colleagues helped out when I started this letter writing campaign two years ago. Um, so I, I think MPs across the country, you know, were were informed. Fewer than fewer than twelve responded, and I'd say among that, only a few sort of had any genuine, you know, comment or interest in it. And um, to, I certainly haven't heard anything this year. It's it is I. I cannot understand their reluctance to just remember what happened. It is an interesting question, and I wouldn't begin to to think what their reasoning is or or what the response would be if more than 12 MPs had responded to you. What will you keep doing, or will you keep asking for this and reaching out to make sure people don't forget and and know that there are people that would still like to see this action taken? I certainly will keep trying with our members of parliament. Um, What I am sort of encouraged with is that more people are becoming aware. Um, I had a a person reach out to me who was a teacher in the school system and, you know, saying that she had no idea that this wasn't in her curriculum. 
And I was glad that at least, you know, little by little, person by person, I think Canadians are, are coming coming along on this, this topic. And I'm hoping that, um, that this will permeate down to the school system. It, um, I, f- I am a little bit worried, though, that we are close to a point of no return. You know, we don't have much time to help people know what they don't know. Did it did it bring up the memories for you, or, or or how was it then when you heard of the the Ukraine Airlines flight being shot down by Iran? And certainly, not that there's similarities, but there hasn't been a ton of action from the Canadian government. I mean, for more political reasons, I'm sure, uh, in in standing up for Iranian Canadians and for people families of people who were on that flight either. Well, certainly, when when it happened, I mean, I don't think anyone who is you know aware or touched by by the Air India bombing could feel anything but compassion and sadness you know that additionally Canadian families were were affected were murdered um, so as you say you know we 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 don't want to sort of start trying to compare tragedy just tragedy is tragedy so you know my heart does go out to all of those families and friends who lost loved ones as to what can be done politically. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, again, wouldn't want to try to guess as to how difficult it is to make another country do something. Um, you know, that is, that is just a problem that I think is going to have to be chipped away at slowly. It may be successful. It may not be. Um, again, we, we are now trying to deal with a foreign government, and I don't know what kind of leverage Canada has. Uh, so, so going back to, to what you've been calling for, and I know, was it, was it last year there was a statement on June 23rd? I, I would imagine that the state, a statement isn't quite enough. It's not enough. Um, I mean, I appreciate that, yes, something is said. But the fact that that is always issued, you know, after MPs have left. Now, this year, of course, with the COVID challenges, the parliamentary schedule is, is all muddled as it is. But... I'm not content, really, with a statement that is issued after everybody has left the building. I would like to see MPs together just stand up and give a moment to this to remember, you know, 329 people who died, most of them Canadian families, 86 children. If you count um, people under the age of 18, the death count is 137, you know, 137 young lives taken at once. I I do feel that members of Parliament could do that much for us. All right, Uh, Mira, we will leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me.